Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Guys, I feel bereft. Yeah, Shane's there's not here. There's an emptiness here. Yeah, Shane, there's a there's, there's a hole that can never be filled. We carry Shane in our hearts always. <laughs> we should probably clarify that he's on vacation. Yeah, he's not dead. <laughs> or Lest anything. any listeners are growing concerned, but we miss him. <laughs> but a week without Shane feels like a lifetime without Shane. Oh, it's it's like a week without sunshine, and a week without bad puns. I'm going to really work on the transitions, the segues uh, today, and I'm going to do Shane proud. As long as you nail the band name at the end. Yeah. I'm not so good at that part. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the utterly shameless edition. <laughs> I'm Ben Wittes, bereft and tearful. And I'm joined around the table by Susan Hennessy, Tamara Wittes, and not Shane Harris. Well, we miss you, Shane. He's sunbathing somewhere, probably. Uh, Actually, I think he's on a work trip, so and maybe don't be too jealous. But we're going to be shameless next week, too. Maybe this should have been the shameless edition, and that should have been the utterly shameless edition. <laughs> we already screwed it the, up, the, Shane. The, See the, what happens when you're not no, here. No, this is the utterly shameless edition, and next week is the still shameless edition. <laughs> this week on the podcast, big protests in Hong Kong. We have a special guest to talk about that. Kamala Harris gets all Trumpy with the lock him up stuff. Very prosecutorial of her. Yeah. And... Pete Buttigieg gives a foreign policy and national security speech. We're going to dive right into it. So let's do that. We have a special guest with us today joining us from Beijing International Airport. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I'm sitting waiting for a flight. It's Sophia Yan, who listeners of the podcasts know from the piano playing. but The multi-talented Sophia Yan. Yeah, tell us what you actually do in your day job. Oh, well, I work as a journalist, so I'm heading off to Hong Kong because there's been a lot of protests, riots, depends who you ask, but there's been a lot going on in Hong Kong, so I'm heading over there to see what's happening on the ground. And so Sophia is a Beijing-based correspondent for The Telegraph, and you lived in Hong Kong for how long? Five years. From 2012 on, I moved to Beijing in 2017, so I was there in 2014 when the last time, really, that protests of this scale happened in Hong Kong. It wasn't that long ago, really. <laughs> All right. So give us the background here. You know, from a Washington point of view, this seemed to come out of nowhere, as did the 2014 protests. But, you know, we're, we were all not paying attention. And all of a sudden, there's hundreds of thousands of people in the streets in Hong Kong. And then all of a sudden after that, it gets pretty violent pretty quickly. So, you know, what's going on? Well, for years, since Hong Kong was handed back to mainland China in 1997 as a former British colony, there have been a lot of changes. There was an agreement that was inked at that time meant to guarantee various freedoms and autonomy for Hong Kong for 50 years. 
But in recent years, a lot of that has started to change. And so a lot of Hong Kong residents have felt like they just don't see a brighter future for themselves, for the next generation. What was so striking about the protest in 2014 was that it, it was led by students, high school students, you know, and, and when the police threw tear gas at them, even more people came out. So something similar is going on this time around. It's also a lot of students who are out in the streets protesting. They're upset over an extradition bill. It's just, uh, it's very new. It was introduced in April, and the city's legislature has tried to rush it through. Just on Wednesday, there was uh, there was a meant to be a second and third round of debate on the bill, which is why we saw, again, another really massive turnout, which follows, by the way, even bigger protests from over the weekend. So a lot of these silent marches and sit-ins, they've been going on for the last few months because a lot of people in Hong Kong are very much upset with this extradition bill, which could see people in Hong Kong, anyone traveling through Hong Kong, including foreigners, be sent to mainland China to face trial, where the Communist Party has a lot of influence over the courts. You know, things like forced confessions and torture. This is fairly commonplace when you talk to human rights experts. And a lot of people I've interviewed in the past, you know, have talked about these issues, too. So I know that over the last couple of years, we've seen some fairly prominent dissident voices in Hong Kong, a bookstore owner and others who were disappeared and ultimately turned up in the custody of the Chinese government. So do those events also play into this extradition bill? Is is this extradition bill seen as regularizing a kind of Chinese government ability to reach into Hong Kong and suppress political dissent officially rather than unofficially? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's what a lot of people are saying, that this would basically make it, it would legitimize what the Chinese government has already been doing. And there's a bit of a really wry, sarcastic joke going around that Beijing simply has too many names on the list. It's just easier to pass a law and send them over, quote unquote, legally, rather than send teams of kidnappers across the board to go get them. And, you know, it's something that's happened before. You mentioned the booksellers. That's the most recent and well-known case. And, you know, Beijing grabbed people from outside of mainland China. Even, you know, one guy was even nabbed in uh, Thailand. So this, in many ways, a lot of rights groups are saying that this would legitimize what the Chinese Communist Party has been doing all along. And in a way, it would make it perhaps harder to kick up a diplomatic fuss because, well, you know, Beijing could say, we were following the law. We did it by the book. So for a lot of people who are looking at this, you know, it's just yet another way that Beijing is trying to erode and snuff out freedoms in Hong Kong. And Sophia, is there any expectation that Beijing actually backs down here? Um, so it sounds as though they, they do have the votes to pass the law, unless Beijing essentially decides not to go forward with it. Um, these are obviously huge protests. Are they primarily symbolic, sort of just expressing that this is not being done with the consent of the, of the people of Hong Kong? Or is there a genuine expectation that, you know, that the Chinese government might decide to blink here? The sense that I've gotten is that people feel like they have to at least try. You know, you're right, there are enough votes in terms of the pro-Beijing camp to pass this without any sort of opposition. So a lot of people still expect this to go through, and it could go through next week. I mean, who knows what happens next? These protests haven't really made an impact on what city leaders have said. You know, they've continued to say that they're going to press forward. Now, Wednesday, again, there was supposed to be another round of debate, but that was postponed. That was just canceled. And a new date for that hasn't been set. But the delay, you know, I wouldn't take it as a sign that Beijing will back down. I mean, for them, this is kind of an embarrassment, really. This is the 70th year 
of the founding of the People's Republic of China. This is supposed to be a really big, boisterous year full of celebrations, but it's also a very sensitive year. It's five years since the Umbrella Movement in Hong Kong. It's also the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. We just passed that. It was on June 4th. And so there are a lot of politically sensitive anniversaries going on. And what China really wants is to just show how much, how far it's come in these last 70 years. So having this sort of flare up now, it's pretty embarrassing for them. So how is this being covered domestically in China? Are are mainland Chinese aware that this is happening? And how is is it being covered in state media at all? And to the extent it is, uh, what's being said about these hundreds of thousands of people in the streets in Hong Kong? So it's, it's largely not being covered at all um, in Chinese state media. Obviously, Beijing government censors here very much control news and information, even entertainment, like what TV shows you get to watch. The only coverage there's really been are a handful of editorials that say, quote, foreign forces are interfering in Chinese domestic matters and that the world really should butt out, that this is something that China needs to handle and something that China will work out with Hong Kong and and has nothing to do with the rest of the world. And, you know, this idea that, quote, unquote, foreign interference, this is something that China often uses. They often do say, this is our house. <laughs> don't tell us what we're doing is wrong. <laughs> you don't have the right. So that's basically the tone that's been put out in the mainland. And state media has been focusing actually instead on the state visit that Xi Jinping, the leader of the ruling Communist Party, is making to Central Asia. So there have been things like road repairs <laughs> that China's involved in in Kyrgyzstan. You know, so it's not acknowledging in a big way at all what's going on. And Beijing doesn't want to. Again, I mentioned before, it should be a very happy year for China. It should be one that they're able to look back on and celebrate all the achievements of the founding of the People's Republic of China for 70 years. So for this to come up now is not good from Beijing's point of view. It seems to me that this is somewhat different from some of the other controversies uh, where the Chinese government responds, hey, this is our sovereign business, but out. And that's because of the agreement under which the British handed Hong Kong over. They're supposed to have 50 years in which to negotiate how to handle the fact that Hong Kong was governed, you know, relatively speaking, as an open society for such a long time. And and these 50 years were supposed to be, you know, one country, two systems. And so, you know, what China's doing here is not only trying to impose one system on Hong Kong, but it's also going back on an international agreement. Um, and that's why this is getting such an international spotlight, not just because you have a million people in the streets and not just because the local Hong Kong government has decided to call one million people marching a riot, but also because there actually is an international interest here. Do you get any sense from the Chinese government that that element of the international interest is one of concern that it might bleed over to other international agreements and negotiations they're involved in? You know, I don't think Beijing thinks that way. I think they really do see this as a domestic issue. You know, it's true. There is this 50-year agreement. We're barely halfway through it. We're about 22 years through it. So if this is the way things are, and we're not even halfway through that 50-year period, I mean, you have to wonder what things look like when we hit 2047, which is when that agreement is supposed to be up. You know, China's take generally, when they look at this, again, the world to just butt out. And there's some sense that perhaps communist indoctrination has been too weak in a place like Hong Kong. You know, a lot of these protesters are very young, teenagers, college students, 
So they've grown up entirely under communist Chinese rule. And for them, they just don't see a brighter future and they want to keep their home the way as they know it. You know, so I think from Beijing's perspective, this shouldn't have any sort of impact on anything else that's going on. And, you know, you look at all the things that China's been doing. There's been a lot of, you know, different comments about the sorts of things that are happening here. There's the trade war with the U.S. There's been from Washington a lot of concern about how China goes about and does business, you know, this corporate espionage, things like that, Huawei hacking issue. And then there's a human rights issue. China's got, you know, one to three million people locked up arbitrarily in detention camps in the far west of the country. Many Western governments have spoken out about these issues already, and China hasn't backed down at all. So foreign pressure, foreign forces, quote unquote, as Beijing calls it, I mean, it doesn't seem to be having very much impact on how they operate, because they just want to do, it seems, what they want to do, and they're going to go for it. So, Sophia, what is a realistic or plausible sort of end state here, right? So is it really plausible, you know, based on what Xi Jinping's, his sort of vision for China that he's articulated, that he actually is going to tolerate or Beijing is prepared to tolerate some reasonably autonomous, or independent or open Hong Kong? Or are we looking at sort of an end state that is ultimately about two fundamentally incompatible visions, and it's just going to be a matter of time, or, or that it was sort of a pipe dream to think that even in 50 years, uh, it was actually possible to reach a, a genuinely mutually acceptable compromise. You know, it's interesting that the idea of reaching some sort of compromise, the benefit to Beijing is that continuing to do that means that it will always have its golden nugget, its golden egg, whatever you want to call it. Hong Kong is this very free place. It's literally where East meets West. So a lot of major companies around the world, this is where they have their Asia headquarters. So Hong Kong has always been this global financial hub. It's a place you can be, you know, it's been a safe haven for dissidents, activists from mainland China who would be persecuted, who, who come across and are able to live. But that's all starting to change. The fact that there are more protests and this might give Beijing pause. They might start to consider what they could do. But what happened after the 2014 protests is that they cracked down even more. You know, there were all sorts of things that happened. They barred certain candidates from running. They expelled others who had already been elected. Even university professors have lost contracts, like ones who've been a little bit more outspoken about the political environment. They've lost their jobs. So the crackdown actually got worse after those protests. And I think it was clear to Beijing when that happened in 2014 that they just had to exercise a stronger response. And you saw that also with how they've dealt with Taiwan in recent years. So the fact that this is flaring up again just five years later, I think says a lot. People are obviously very upset. Now, I'm not the Chinese Communist Party. Who knows how they're really thinking? Maybe this will give them an opportunity to reflect a little bit more. But the way that they've governed for 70 years, it just they're not the most self-reflective of leading parties, you know, Again, I, I think I said this before, but it just seems like their take on this will be that they haven't done enough of this communist indoctrination or communist patriotism to fully turn Hong Kong in the, quote, right way. You know, and that's generally the view. And I think going forward, we could see even more crackdown in Hong Kong. Sophia, one more question and then we'll let you go. Any sign of contagion of these protests to mainland China or is this still reasonably understood as a very localized Hong Kong thing? I think very reasonably understood as a localized Hong Kong thing. I mean, 
protests and demonstrations like this are hard to get off the ground in China. So much, everything you do is monitored. You know, all your your apps, your social media, any sort of organizing would be snuffed out pretty quickly. And there's no real news about what's going on in Hong Kong that's freely available to Chinese residents here. So this spillover effect is, you know, pretty far off for now. On that cheerful note, we'll let you go catch your flight so you can uh, bring news of what's going on in Hong Kong to outside of it. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. All right. So let's see if the rest of us can be as cogent at three in the afternoon as Sophia Yan was at three in the morning in an airport in Beijing. One person who failed that test today was candidate for President Kamala Harris, who told NPR's Scott Detrow that she was ready to see Donald Trump indicted once he leaves office. And she did not say chant lock him up in the course of doing that, but she did make clear that she actually favored a particular prosecutorial outcome in that case, which I personally found jarring and upsetting. Susan, talk me out of it. Is it okay for Democratic candidates to be talking this way? So no, I don't think it's okay for Democratic candidates to be talking this way. I do think it's important to sort of be fair to what Harris said precisely. So she said when asked whether or not she would want to see the Justice Department bring charges uh, after Trump left office, that she thought the Justice Department would have no choice. When asked as to whether or not uh, he would actually serve jail time as president, she did say, well, the facts and evidence will take the process where it leads. So this is sort of distinguishing her from Nancy Pelosi, who reportedly made private comments in the Democratic caucus meeting, saying that she would like to see President Trump in jail after he leaves office. So the way, way outer edges here is the president of the United States chanting lock her up at campaign rallies. So let's just let's caveat that we're in a different accusing unindicted people of treason, you know, sure. in public statements. Sure. So, so I, I want to start by by acknowledging that the things that the current president of the United States does is genuinely in a different universe. And we should be careful about sort of the false equivalents. That said, I, I think there is good reason to really, really police the boundaries here. And so what Harris said was not, I think he should be in jail or, or saying, I believe he's guilty in advance, something we should never hear politicians talk about. And we don't want to hear presidents talk about it in advance. She said, basically, the she she endorsed a particular prosecutorial outcome, right, saying that she thought that the president would certainly be indicted. So here's where we get into sort of a trickier place. And that's that the Department of Justice has already rendered its prosecutorial decision here. They have decided not to indict the president. And they didn't make a decision not to indict the president right now. The attorney general stepped in and said, we do not believe this conduct supports a charge. And we do not believe that the contents of this report would support an indictment. And so what Harris is talking about, essentially, is a new president from a different political party coming in and overturning a non-prosecution decision of the, of the prior Department of Justice. Now, that's a really, really dangerous road to start walking down. And whenever we talk about this stuff, we want to be incredibly careful because 
the next president of the United States should be worried about rebuilding norms of, of DOJ independence. They should be especially careful not to sort of fall into that trap, right, that, that Trump has eroded norms and there's a little bit of a tendency of people to erode norms in response. Now, that said, and I, I think we've now published this piece on lawfare, you make the point that it's, it's easy to point out that Harris gave the wrong answer, it's actually really, really difficult to say what the right answer is, because even though we don't want to hear candidates or frankly even politicians talking about political opponents like this, there are some really, really difficult questions both immediately on the table and on the table in a, in a sort of theoretical or possibly future way that, that I do think are, are very difficult to sort of grapple with. So I, I want to get to the politics of this question beyond the norms of this question. But first, I have a sort of DOJ question for the two of you, which is, you know, when administrations change, we've seen DOJ change its position on, you know, how it defends federal laws in the courts. We've seen the DOJ change its position on civil suits, on consent decrees. We've seen it change policy on what it will and won't do prosecutorially in terms of hate crimes or, or discrimination claims. So why is this different from that? Yeah. So it's a complicated question. The general rule is that the enforcement priorities and policies of the Justice Department are reasonably subject to political guidance. So it's perfectly reasonable for Barack Obama to come into office and say, we don't want to focus on nonviolent drug offenders. We or we're not going to defend the Defense of Marriage Act. That's a different, that's not an enforcement, uh, you know, that's a view of substantive federal law, right? So those administrations take different positions on within certain boundaries. Enforcement priorities and policies, we're going to focus on gun crimes, we're going to focus on corporate malfeasance, right? These are legitimate. As a general matter, the political echelon does not get involved, should not get involved in individual enforcement actions against people, individual prosecutorial judgments, because once you go down that road, why not? have Donald Trump say, hey, I'm really interested in the Justice Department focusing on crimes by Hillary Clinton, right? right? And it's, it's a protection against exactly that, you know, what Justice Robert Jackson called the, the department not identifying the most serious crime and prosecuting it, but the crime by the most unpopular person, the person most out of favor. Look, I think it's a super hard question, and I spent the morning trying to craft, which I just posted on Lawfare, what the right answer to the question that Kamala Harris was asked would be. And I think the answer is to refuse to answer the question because you can't say either I will direct the department to pursue this or I will direct the department not to pursue this. Either one of those is political intervention in law enforcement. Similarly, you can't say what candidates all the time say about justices and abortion, right? I, there's no litmus test. I'll just appoint the kind of person I'm sure that I know his or her views. If you do that in this area, I mean, it's leave aside that it's, I think, corrupt in that context too. It's super corrupt. I'll appoint Susan Hennessy. I won't have to ask her whether she's going to indict Donald Trump. And I, I just, would make a great attorney general, <laughs> 2020 hopefuls. Because I just know that Susan has 
you know, bloodlust in her heart for, for, the, for the former president. I don't I wouldn't even have to ask that. You can't you can't say that either. Number three, the big question here is a pardon question, because the one other time that this has arisen in American history in an acute sense, it was not resolved by directing the Justice Department to do anything. It was resolved by preemptively pardoning the former president. And you shouldn't take that off the table because there may be really good reasons of national reconciliation to do it depending on circumstances. And then finally, there's this other thing, you know, uh, Susan raised the issue of the finality of Justice Department judgments uh, on criminal matters. That's a really important equity. The other really important equity is, you know, the whole peaceful transition of power thing. We have this tradition dating from 1800, 1801, where when you leave power, the other side doesn't come after you. And that's an important part of the American tradition that you don't want to do violence to. And so if you're Kamala Harris and you're confronted with an NPR reporter who asks you, what would you do? I think the only principled answer is to say, I would appoint the kind of attorney general who we can trust to make such judgments and I won't get involved in law enforcement judgments. And beyond that, I'm not going to answer this question. So I think it's worth noting that there are three sort of possible scenarios whenever we're talking about potential criminality by a president, either while in office or before office, and prosecution decisions afterwards, right? So there's a set of facts in which wrongdoing, you know, presidential criminality is discovered, Congress actually impeaches, or the president resigns before he is impeached. And then there is a question about whether or not prosecution is appropriate. Then I think you get the prudential decision that Gerald Ford faced of not whether or not prosecution was was consistent with sort of American rule of law values, but whether or not it was something that was going to it was going to move the country forward. And that was sort of the appropriate course. So that's one set of facts. The other set of facts or, or, or another set of facts is whenever you have something like the Mueller report on the table and Congress makes the decision not to impeach. And then you sort of leave out there this possibility that maybe he gets prosecuted after office. And, and a little bit, that's the way Pelosi and, and Harris are sort of talking about this as if, you know, it's another remedy. Don't worry if we can't get around to holding him accountable right now. And in Nancy Pelosi's case, never mind that she's the person who actually would be able to initiate the process of holding him accountable. Don't worry about that. There's still this other magical solution. So even if Congress doesn't pursue impeachment, that doesn't mean the president's above the law because, yes, maybe there will be this other remedy. Not only is that damaging for all the reasons that Ben said, it's also just kind of a political fantasy and, and a little bit of, I think, designed to sort of be a pressure valve. There's a third really, really difficult category, and it's one that uh, we may face eventually, and that's when information about presidential criminality or wrongdoing is unearthed either very, very close in time before the next election or after the next election, either in the transition period or when a new president takes office. Then you have you do have really difficult questions about whether or not if you have clear evidence of criminality, it's appropriate to pursue charges. I, I think those those two categories of whether or not when the president has either uh, been impeached or whether or not there's new information, it's, that's a hard substantive question. But we're in the category in which it's it's really unjustifiable to sort of be talking about this way. And that's saying the Constitution puts a political remedy as being the first remedy. We're going to skip that remedy until we're back in political power. And then we're going to go and try and use the criminal justice system. And, and that's why I think it's, it's really an area in which 
it should, we should be drawing a line and saying, no, we do not want to hear 2020 Democratic candidates talking this way. So I I understand from a moral perspective, from a sort of norms and institutions that have sustained our democracy perspective, why you would make this argument about the necessity for candidates to engage in self-restraint and to say that they will exercise power with restraint in this way. I'm not going to argue with any of that, but I do think that there are a couple things going on here that we can't escape and that we need to we need to grapple with. One is that you know, as is discussed almost ad nauseum in the kind of Washington intellectual class as we observe the Trump presidency, the normative self-restraint, the, you know, behave like a leader, not like a uh, not like politics is a blood sport. These are your opponents, not your enemies. You know, all of that loses when the other side is playing as though it's a blood sport. So, you know, if Trump is playing zero sum, then you just lose if you don't also play zero sum. And I think all of our hand wringing about norm erosion has not yet evolved an answer to the question of how you do politics, how you do democratic politics, sustainable democratic politics, when one side is playing that way. It only takes one side to screw it up. And I think that that's why you see so much pressure from the left of the Democratic Party, from the Democratic base, to engage in retributive justice, to say, well, we need a Trump of the left or Trumpism of the left. We want someone who can punch back, right? Um, Because let's recognize we're in a zero-sum game. We can't escape it. We might wish we weren't. We might wish to be above it, but we're not. And so what I saw Nancy Pelosi doing was not to say, don't worry, there's this other magical solution. But as you said, using it as a pressure valve, so much pressure from the base for impeachment that to avoid impeachment, I have to make an excuse that there'll be a prosecution. So that's the politics of it. But I think that is a political mistake because why is Trump almost goading the Democrats into impeaching him? Why are the Democrats so afraid of impeachment? They're afraid that it will motivate the Republican base. They are afraid that it will generate enough momentum to get Trump reelected. And so they're trying to avoid impeachment because they don't want to trigger that response. I think what Nancy Pelosi doesn't grapple with is that this, you know, saying, well, we'll prosecute Trump after we vote him out of office does exactly the same thing. It has exactly the same effect. And so they don't avoid what impeachment would do. And impeachment is, I would argue, between those two, a better option for all the reasons that you that you just laid out. So Pelosi and Kamala Harris are not similarly situated. No, here. no, no, no. And, s- and, it's, and it's important, it's important to <laughs> differentiate. Like Pelosi has a herding cats problem, right? She's got a caucus. Some of it is ferociously committed to impeachment. Some of it is really opposed to it for self-protective district reasons. Some of it is in principle opposed to it. And she's got to find the nuclear position, uh, nuclear in the sense of having to do with the nucleus, not in the sense of the blowing medium, things up. The she's got to figure out the path through. None of that is a reflection of where Kamala Harris is coming from right now, which is in the Democratic campaign, one of the axes of competition is who can be tougher on Trump. And, you know, she is competing with 
you know, first Elizabeth Warren was sort of the first out of the box on impeachment. And they are experimenting with a lot of different positionings with respect to uh, the president. And her particular value add in that conversation, her particular positioning is she is the tough one who's asked prosecutorial questions in a number of hearings. And she's taken flack for her former career as a prosecutor. She's also defended that. Uh, And so she is adopting a pose here, among other things, as the person who is most tough on Trump. And so I don't think she's in the same situation that Pelosi is in. And I'm not as sympathetic to her dilemma as I am to Pelosi. So I agree with you. She's not in the same position. And I guess what I'm wondering is, was that a considered response of, I want to take this tack because I think it's better than calling for impeachment? Or was that her answering the question as a prosecutor, not as a presidential candidate? Was she answering the question? I mean, she was definitely answering the question as a politician, not a leader in the way that you would wish a someone aspiring to be president to lead. And I hear you on that. But do we think she meant to do what you're suggesting she was doing to make that political play? Or was she just thinking like a prosecutor and saying, well, if I were attorney general, I would indict? <laughs> I mean, I think she really was speaking like a prosecutor and she references her prosecutorial record in, in sort of answering this question. The problem is that she's not just a member of Congress anymore and she's not just a former prosecutor. She's a presidential candidate. And so especially in this election, presidential candidates are, are sort of the first line in this very long and important process of restoring norms. And so I think Ben is right that the only right answer to give here is a non-answer. But I do think you could go further and say, I don't want to answer that question because I don't think that politicians should be opining on on the criminality of political opponents. I I just don't think that's appropriate. And I think the appropriate way for us to discuss uh, violations of the law is in the context of an impeachment hearing, which is the context in in which our branch is permitted or uh, or assigned to grapple with these questions. And I'm happy to discuss it uh, through that particular lens. That said, you know, I, I will appoint an attorney general who is faithful to the principles of the Department of Justice. And I intend to restore this country back to these really, really important norms. And so every question like this, I I think it's not so much that this was the wrong answer, although I I agree it was a wrong answer. It's a missed opportunity to start shifting the conversation, not into this sort of, you know, what are how are we going to solve a problem like Trump? And instead, how are we going to rebuild fundamental, crucial, essential parts of U.S. institutions. Uh, and, and I don't see any candidates really reaching out and, and grabbing that ring. Yeah, but I think that's because no one in the Democratic Party voting base wants that. They are, they're all the bloodthirsty, you know, they, they want Susan to be attorney general so that she can prosecute Trump. But they're I all... want it. The <laughs> Rational Security Podcasting host base If you want it. Susan to be attorney general... <laughs> Tweet to the hashtag <laughs> Susan for Attorney General. And uh, we will I would make a terrible attorney we general. We will on the next episode read the best uh, those will be my object lessons. The best oh, oh no. uh, the best Susan for Attorney General hashtag uh, that we get. Speaking of ill considered statements by candidates, uh, <laughs> 
Pete <laughs> Buttigieg made a deeply considered statement as a candidate. So it's sort of the opposite of the Kamala Harris thing. He gave a lengthy foreign policy speech. This is, I think, the second major foreign policy speech by a candidate. We discussed Elizabeth Warren's vision. Tammy, how similar is Pete Buttigieg's vision to uh, to uh, Elizabeth Warren's foreign policy vision? And what did Mayor Pete have to say on on matters beyond the shores of South Bend? Yeah, well, he he went from South Bend all the way to Bloomington. Um, to, <laughs> that's that's what counts as foreign policy in when Indiana. you're a, when you're a small town mayor in Indiana. Yeah, in Indiana it does no, but Indiana University has actually a a great school of international affairs. Um, it teaches more languages than any other university in the country, as Buttigieg noted in his speech. And it's also the symbolism is nice because the two kind of founding figures of that international affairs school are a Republican and a Democrat, Dick Lugar and Lee Hamilton. And so for Buttigieg, I think the symbolism was foreign policy matters to middle America. Here I am in Indiana. And foreign policy doesn't have to be a polarizing issue. And he talked about Senator Luger in the beginning of his speech and and spoke in praise of of the memory of that man. So the speech itself, wow. When we talked about Elizabeth Warren's speech, we noted that it kind of zoomed in on a couple of big issues and there were a lot of things it didn't address. It talked about, I think, nuclear proliferation and no first use. It talked about global trade a lot. There were a lot of things it didn't talk about. Pete Buttigieg's speech talks about everything. Like, wow, is this a wonky speech. This is the speech that if you were finishing your master's course in U.S. foreign policy and your final assignment was to write, a, you know, American strategy for the 21st century, that's this speech. It's got a section on every major global issue, climate change, nonproliferation, you know, uh, cybersecurity. It's got a paragraph on every region of the world. It's full of complex sentences. So, so I can't, I can't <laughs> tell if you're saying this in praise or in criticism. Honestly, so, look as a wonk myself. I am admiring of this speech. I'm admiring of the the care and thought and comprehensiveness of it. And actually, there's a lot of really good thinking your way through tough problems in this speech especially the relationship between American values and American interests, which is kind of a recurring theme. The flip side is like, first of all, get an editor, man. This thing is really long. It's like Tammy is bored with your foreign policy (laughs) speech. You have gone off the rails. It's like Bill Clinton long. Okay. (laughs) Secondly, and I and I doubt that any, you know, American whose job it is not to read this speech read the entire thing or watched the entire thing. But secondly, foreign policy does not usually figure prominently in presidential campaigns for a reason. And the reason is one that Buttigieg himself identifies and discusses, which is that a lot of Americans have trouble connecting foreign policy and America's role in the world to their daily lives. What surprised me is that given that he talks about that, not just in this speech, but all the time, why that wasn't more of a focus of of the substance of what he was saying. 
Why didn't he make that the organizing principle of this speech instead of a side note? So I, to me, it's it's great. It's fine. It doesn't break any barriers substantively, but it was also a big missed opportunity. Susan, what what did you think? Are you uh, are you friendlier or less friendly to the Buttigieg foreign policy oeuvre than Tammy is? I mean, there is something about a speech that's sort of an indictment of the lack of strategic vision of democratic foreign policy that doesn't actually offer any kind of strategic vision itself. There's a, there's a little bit of sort of disconsonance there, and and he moves back and forth between making highly specific statements sort of on Netanyahu and the West Bank with these really sort of broad strokes of areas in which he doesn't answer things like, do you support the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right? Or or he would rejoin the Iran deal without sort of articulating how he might go about that, how he might sort of begin to repair the damage of the Trump administration. And there's a, there's this hilarious McSweeney's piece um, that they posted that's entitled A Rough Transcript of any in Every Interview with Pete Buttigieg, oh, no. which I think actually came out before he did this speech. Um, and it includes comments like, uh, the, the, this is a pretend transcript, but, you know, what did you learn from your time in the Navy Reserve? The Middle East, dot, 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 steeples hands, is complicated. (laughs) Wow, that's a profound insight you only get from fighting on the front lines. Here's a Polaroid of me in the desert holding a gun. How do you feel about the use of American force abroad? It's like Graham Greene said, innocence is like a dumb leper that has lost its bell. (laughs) Wandering around the world, meaning no harm. (laughs) Excellent. So I can think of two reasons if I were Pete Buttigieg, I might give such a speech. And they cut in very different directions. I'm interested in both of your sense of which is accurate or whether there's some other explanation. The first is that you're actually undisciplined and that you're you're kind of the master's student who this is your opportunity to give a – uh, an address on U.S. policy in the world and grand strategy, and damn it, you're not going to miss the chance. So that's possibility number one. Possibility number two is that you actually don't want to talk about foreign policy. You want to talk about domestic stuff. You want to talk about vision stuff. You want to talk about what an awesome personality you are and how good you are at the natural politics stuff. And you're afraid that you're going to be accused of being light on foreign policy. So you give this huge, sprawling, comprehensive foreign policy speech right at the beginning of the campaign when no one's really listening, no one's going to pay attention to it. And any time the subject comes up, any subject comes up for the rest of the campaign, you can say, as I said in my foreign policy speech, you know, my landmark major foreign policy speech, blah, blah, blah. And then you go on and talk about what you want to talk about. So strategic data dump early in the campaign or undisciplined sprawl? I mean, look, I, I think it's it's neither. I, I don't think it's undisciplined. I think it's it's a hedge, right, that he he doesn't want to commit to positions until he's sort of he's he's tested the water. You know, I will say at least on sort of the use of force stuff, he does actually appear to be staking out a lane. Right. So, so what is he saying? On so that? he is essentially saying uh, that he he believes in the use of force, even the unilateral use of force, but only as a last resort and only when vital interests are at stake. And so that is kind of an interesting lane that certainly um, distances himself a little 
little bit from frontrunner Joe Biden. I'd say a lot of this speech was about calculating to sort of distance himself from Biden's record and sort of and, and launch a critique of, of the, you know, the continuity of sort of the Clinton-Biden-Obama-era uh, uh, foreign policy. It was also, you know, pushing kind of the the Warren and, and Bernie Sanders uh, people into a corner by saying, I'm not going to make, uh, you know, big, clear statements about, uh, you know, the United States is no longer going to interfere. Uh, there's no there's not going to be any U.S. interference abroad or intervention in, abroad, um, you know, that there are circumstances in which, you know, force is necessary and appropriate. And so I, I do think it's, it's a squishy middle and he's not committing to specifics. But I think that was the goal here, at least on the use of force issues. Yeah, I don't think that this what that this speech was a result of political calculation actually. It reads like so much of what Pete Buttigieg has to say. It reads incredibly sincerely and thoughtfully. The use of force stuff is an interesting example, you know, if you're running for president or you're running for the Democratic Party nomination, you have to talk about Iraq and you have to talk about why Iraq was a disaster. And if you're a military veteran talking about forever wars and the need to end them, you especially have to do that. But the way he did it is really interesting. He said, we have to remember the lesson of the Iraq disaster. It's not that there's anything wrong with standing for American values, but the way we stand for our values has to be strategic, legitimate, and constrained in terms of the use of force. You know, he says we need to bring an end to these forever wars. But we also need to keep a a counterterrorism presence in places like Afghanistan. So we need to repeal and replace the AUMF. That's pretty specific and pretty important. And he really dings Congress hard on its failure to take up its responsibility on revising the AUMF. But he also says things that I think will be music to the ears of any progressive, like war itself represents a kind of failure. And true success lies in preventing conflict. Now, if Bernie Sanders says that, he immediately gets pilloried as, you know, you leftist, naive idiot. But again, a veteran who served in Afghanistan can say that and it has a completely different valence. And so I agree, Susan, that he's positioning himself, but I don't think it's a mushy middle. I do think that it's a, it is liberal internationalism in that kind of classic Democratic Party, middle of the Democratic Party mold. But it's one that's saying, I'm not going to be what Hillary and Biden were. I I would never have voted for the Iraq war. I mean, one thing I think will be really interesting is uh, to the extent to which people want to start pushing presidential candidates on things that presidents can actually do. So it's really easy to beat up on Congress on AUMF issues and sort of Congress ceding its power to the executive. Obama did that, too. And then we saw that whenever he came into the Oval Office, he had some different feelings on sort of, uh, you know, how the executive should be uh, wielding its own powers. And so it is it will be interesting moving forward to see if people like Buttigieg are willing to not just say, you know, Congress needs to step up. But by the way, Congress, if you don't step up, I'm not going to fill the void for you. And I have a vision of what the presidency should be doing. And part of my restoration of those norms is not to exceed it and to sort of dump the responsibility back in your lap. It's very Bob Mueller of him. (laughs) I think you're raising a really great question, though. Um, Where you stand depends on where you sit. So one just quick note, which I think that the only news headline that came out of this speech was his statement about Israel and what if Netanyahu annexes West Bank settlements. 
and a sort of implied threat to condition or or cut American assistance. I just want to say I think that is less dramatic than it was taken to be by a lot of the news media, given that there are already all kinds of laws on the books that constrain spending of American taxpayer dollars to keep them out of the West Bank and Gaza, dollars to Israel from being spent in the West Bank and Gaza. So I think it sounds like it's creating a big gap with the other candidates or with the establishment position, if you will. But I think in practice, it's not actually that dramatic. All right. Well, speaking of dramatic, it's time for some dramatic object lessons. Susan. So my object lesson is a dramatic moment uh, from the Hipsy hearing this morning. Um, so one of the witnesses that the Republicans had called is Andy McCarthy, um, who's a prominent conservative uh, commentator, who's written a lot about things like the Mueller report. And under oath today, Andy McCarthy admitted that he has not read the entire Mueller report. Specifically, he has not read all of volume two. I'm not sort of bringing this up just to beat up on Andy McCarthy, who is a perfectly lovely human being, although I I certainly don't agree with his uh, legal or political views on a lot of things. You know, if people are going to be commenting on the Mueller report, if they're going to be writing about it, if they're going to be testifying in front of the United States Congress on the subject, I actually don't think it's too much to ask that people actually spend the time to read this report. So, look, you know what, we've we've beaten up on sort of Congress and, and journalists for not having engaged with the report enough. But but just to foot stomp it again, that actually this is a really important question that more people should be asked, whether they're speaking under oath or whether or not they're just sort of commenting on the subject. Have you actually read the entire report? And if the answer is no, I think the response is then get back to us when you actually have. And until then, we're not interested in what you have to say. So can I ask you a clarifying question about what Andy was asked and what he said? Uh, So if somebody asked me, have you read the entirety of the Mueller report? I would have to say, you know, there are footnotes in it that I have not read. I've read the entire text of it at least twice. But depending on how the question was asked, I might have to, I would have to concede, you know, I I have not looked at every citation. And my question was, was Andy in this situation admitting that his work was deficient or was he merely being scrupulous in conceding that there are words and passages that he may have looked over? So I don't have the precise quote in front of me. I did not take the response to be, no, I haven't, you know, I haven't read some footnotes or there's some part of the annex. I have not read every single word of the report. It was an acknowledgement that particularly when it comes to volume two, there are sections he had not read. Fair enough. Tammy, what you got? Uh, so my object is an actual physical object. It is a little monograph that was released um, yesterday by the Stimson Center. The Stimson Center is a think tank, a smallish think tank that has historically focused a lot on nonproliferation issues. And it was founded by a guy named Barry Blackman and someone for whom I worked as a research assistant when I was in graduate school. And Stimson yesterday published a, a little collection of essays in Barry's honor called Reflections on a National Security Life. Barry has been working in this field for over 40 years and is still working right now on a new volume, an updated version of a landmark piece of work 
um, that he published in 1978 called Force Without War, which was the first comprehensive study of coercive diplomacy, uses of force short of war by the United States. And so a bunch of us who over these many decades worked for Barry as research assistants put together essays for this collection reflecting on Barry's work at various points in his career and how he affected our own career trajectories. And we got a chance to celebrate him and his work yesterday. So I commend this little volume to all of you who want to see what 40 years of impact looks like. And Barry's not even done yet. And one of the editors on this book, a uh, little, little uh, pamphlet, is Taj Moore, who was uh, in a prior life a lawfare student contributor. Uh, and, so and a Blackman research assistant, it, along with Alex Bolfras, who's the other editor. Indeed. Uh, my object lesson is also uh, log rolling for friends of, of the site. Dan Byman's new book, Road Warriors, Foreign Fighters in the Armies of Jihad, it is just out from Oxford University Press, and Dan was on the Lawfare podcast uh, we recorded two days ago. I don't think that has run yet, but you can, if you want the conversational version of the book, tune into the podcast and uh, and then go buy the book and read it because it's a pretty uh, substantial and very serious piece of work. And that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. Uh, you can find our objects and all the stuff that we do. And on, our weepy faces. And our weepy, shame-bereft faces on the show page on the Lawfare site. You can get Rational Security merch along with all the other Lawfare merch at thelawfarestore.com. And the one advantage to having Shane away is that we just get to say that without him tripping over what thelawfarestore.com is. So if you were having trouble with it before, you can just go to the Lawfare store now and buy lots of stuff not inhibited by Shane. You should also go leave us a rating and you know how many stars it should have on whatever podcast distribution service you use. You should rate us and review us and share us on all kinds of social media. The Lawfare Podcast was recorded this week by Michaela Fogel. It is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan and the Hong Kong Rioters. Is that a metal band or a punk band? It's like a lounge band. Two and a half <laughs> stars. And, yeah. And, I, and you're only calling them rioters so that you can use water cannon and arrest them. Actually, yeah, I think that's right. It's the Hong Kong peaceful protesters. Thank you. Actually, I just used Sophia Yan this time because she was actually on the show and so saying like Pete Buttigieg and the Hong Kong peaceful protesters yeah. would be ridiculous. And as always, we will do it again next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.